All right, we started the series probably about six weeks ago now that we've entitled Becoming a First Century Church. And the goal is we're trying to look at the book of Acts, look at the letters of Paul, look what Jesus said, and see how did the church operate in the first century? What is a pattern we can follow? What is a direct command? What are some things that maybe we could do a little bit different, but still fall into the category of being biblical? We want to be creative. We want to be friendly. We want to be relevant. We want to be all these things. But most of all, we want to be biblical. Hence the term becoming a first century church instead of a 21st century church. Because the word of God does not adapt to the culture, though within the culture we can look for different ways to be effective and connect with people. The word of God stays the same. The word of God never changes. And the word of God will speak directly to the issues that are going on in the culture, whatever day and age in which we live. So with that being said, I said that I was going to teach out of the study book for this that was from Pastor Clarence Sexton, Becoming a First Century Church. And I think so far I've followed one of the outlines and then the rest was all just stuff that I wanted to study launching from there. So at this point, I don't really know if I'm going to use much of the book. I might just kind of keep... I seem to do better when I just kind of study a little bit more on my own and hopefully it's being a blessing to y'all. But we may use those outlines as a template at some point, but we started studying the leadership of the first century church. And I think we did three weeks on qualifications of a pastor. And so here in first Timothy chapter three, we taught verse one through seven. And now we come to verse number eight, where we're going to stop and consider the other office of the church, which is that of deacon. This is one of the few passages that mentions this office of a deacon in the New Testament. So tonight we'll talk a little bit about what the qualifications are and the background in the book of Acts for why they instituted deacons in the first place and what their function were and what their function is to be within the church. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 8, after giving the qualifications of a pastor, the Bible says, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. So before we go through all the rest of these, we're going to back up and go to the book of Acts here in just a moment. But it's important to note that the Bible gives many of the same qualifications that a pastor must have are also given to the deacons. So it's a very important position, one that should come with gravity, and the men who would fulfill that role, if the need arises within the church, would need to fit many of the same qualifications that a pastor fills. So first of all, the word deacon itself, and as I've told you, uh, we preach only from the King James, but I'm 100% committed to looking at the Greek, looking at the Hebrew, knowing the words that are behind what is translated in the Bible, because it adds context to what they were doing, and we don't just want to read through a passage and assume in our English we know what they were talking about in their English. So the word deacon, the Greek word there, the definition is given an attendant, a waiter, at table, or in other menial duties. The word at its most basic level means servant. It means waiting, a waiting man, minister, or messenger, meaning that waiting upon others as you would wait a table and as you would serve. So the word deacon means servant. That would be if you want to just put the the baseline definition there in your handout. So let's pause and go back to the book of Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter 6, and we'll come back to 1 Timothy 3. Acts 
Acts chapter 6, in beginning in verse number 1, this is the early days after Jesus went back to heaven. And what we see is that the church was going through a time of explosive growth. Acts chapter 6 and verse number 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. The word ministration there means uh, ministry, to attend to. And there arose a complaint of the Grecians against the Hebrews because there were widows who had needs that were being neglected. This is part of what, as we pray and ask for the Lord to grow our church, my dad used to say, when you go through times of growth, more people means more problems. There's a lot more blessing that comes along with it, but there's a lot more details and things to take care of. I think of the Old Testament verse, I believe in Proverbs, where it says, where no oxen are, the crib is clean. However, much strength is gained by the use of the ox. Okay, so you want the oxen to pull the cart, you're going to have to go clean up sometimes, but you still come out ahead in the long run because you gain the strength and the power. So anything worth having comes with work. And the church was what? The church was multiplied. And as such, people became busy. There was more things to take care of. And they said there's widows among the Hebrews that have needs that are not being looked after. Verse 12. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. That word reason basically means appropriate. It's not appropriate that we should leave the word of God and go serve tables. Now, there was a function that needed to be done. There were tables that needed to be served. There were widows who needed help. But the 12 apostles looked and they said things have multiplied so much that this need does need to be done, but it's not appropriate or right that we would leave the word of God and spend all of our time running these errands. Verse 3, so a solution is given. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So we believe, as most all do, that this group was the first deacons that were given within the church because it fits the function, the word of servant, the word of being a blessing and waiting a table and looking to be a help to those who are a help. And they looked right away, though we don't have the full list of qualifications given in 1 Timothy 3. They said, let's find seven men, and they need to be men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, and we will appoint them over this business. This was to be someone who was going to represent the church in an important way, and it couldn't just be anyone. The church doesn't want to go hire unsaved musicians to come in and play the music so it would be professional. The church doesn't just want to hire a property manager necessarily to help take care of these types of a deal. No, the church within the church said, let's let people step up and serve, but they need to be able to represent the Lord and represent the church correctly. And verse 4 says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the word deacon means servant, and deacons were first instituted in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and then below that, deacons were ordained because the church was growing. It says in verse number 1, the disciples multiplied. Below that, deacons were ordained so that the church leaders could have time 
to study the Word of God and pray. Verse 4 says, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And again, Andrew kind of, I think you did a Sunday school lesson from this passage and he was talking about looking to be a blessing and looking to help the pastor or whatever other ways. And he said, it's not that pastors are above serving. Uh, certainly a pastor should be a servant minded and a servant's heart. And I think he even told the story of one of his home churches where it was an assistant pastor and it was after a meal and he was just kind of standing around while other people were breaking down the tables and the senior pastor said, why aren't you do, why aren't you helping? He said, that's not my job. I'm not supposed to have to do that kind of stuff. Well, he didn't have a job very long after that because the pastor didn't like that he had an attitude of he was above things, but rather what this passage teaches, again, in a context where what happened a few chapters earlier on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved, baptized, and added to the church in one day. That's a lot of disciples. That's a big congregation. And that was happening all over the place with the church. And they literally were saying, if we were to try and run and take care of all of these details on a day-to-day basis, we would not have time to pray. We would not have time to go to the ministry of the Word. And they said that's not appropriate. So it was not just that they would neglect people who needed help or that they would neglect the ministry of the Word and prayer. They said, let's get help. And there's a lot of wisdom in delegating and letting people help you and come along beside you instead of always trying to do everything all by yourself. Um, We also have the example of the Apostle Paul who worked very hard to build tents so that he wouldn't be teaching brand new converts before they were ready about they needed to pay him so that he could be a missionary full-time, though he said that was the will of God for a missionary or servant of God. He worked very hard so that he would not be chargeable to them, and then he added in that teaching about giving at a later time. So again, it's not about one position being above another or one person being above hard work. It's rather the practicality of the matter in a church that big that if they were to try to run around and meet every single need, they would have to neglect the Word of God in prayer, which is a primary calling of a bishop, was as Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be instant, in season and out of season. First Peter 5 1, he said, The elders who are among you, I exhort to feed the flock. That's part of the primary calling of the pastor is to do that. So verse number five. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and then it names all of the deacons here. Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Proselyte there meaning a convert of the city of Antioch. Of whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Hence, we, I have in the handout, deacons were ordained. We see the same practice of a pastor where other pastors laid hands upon them and pray and commend them into the ministry. So the deacons also were ordained. Uh, let's see a little bit more here. Uh, one of the first deacons was Stephen. One of the first deacons was Stephen. Let's look at um, Acts chapter 7 and verse number 54. 
This is just the story of the the faithful testimony of Stephen, one of the first deacons, who, by the way, in the verses preceding, he preached and proclaimed Jesus Christ in some way trying to be a good witness, trying to spread the gospel, trying to proclaim Jesus doesn't fall simply to one office or the other, but rather to all of us as Christians that we would do our best to be a light, to be salt, to be a witness to people who are around us. But here he's preaching. He has just finished preaching to a bunch of the Jews who did not want to receive what he had to say. And in verse 54, the Bible says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. If you know the story of Stephen, this good, devout man, a servant of the church who was also a proclaimer of the gospel, you know that in just these next couple verses, we see that he becomes a martyr. He is killed for his faith. He is killed as a heretic for teaching that Jesus was God and that he was the Messiah and that he was the God of the Old Testament. But what we see in verse number 55, before he has died, he looks up to heaven and God kind of parts back the curtain And he sees the glory of God, and he sees Jesus standing on the right hand of God. It's as if Christ himself said, a faithful man is about to be martyred for the cause of Jesus Christ. I'm stepping forth to meet him and welcome him into heaven myself. He saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God while he was still alive. Verse 56, And said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. They were convicted by the message. That's what it says in verse number 54. They were cut to the heart. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They did not want to hear the gospel. Verse 58 says, And cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Isn't it amazing what Jesus Christ can do when people receive him in salvation? This very man here watching over the murder of Stephen, whose name was Saul, would later meet Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and have his name changed to the Apostle Paul and would be saved and have his sins forgiven and end up writing half of the New Testament. Jesus Christ can forgive you no matter what it is you've done. Verse 59, and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, meaning Stephen's calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which means that he died. This deacon Stephen was a good man. He was a good testimony and he received a martyr's welcome and a martyr's crown in heaven. One of the first deacons was Stephen. He was a good man. And I think what I'm referring to there is Acts chapter 6 and verse number 3. He was a man that was full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. So there we see what I believe and what most all believe was the first institution of the office of deacon because they needed help to take care of the church congregation. So let's turn now back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And verse number 8, which we read, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, 
not greedy of filthy lucre. Much of the same qualifications that a pastor has to have. Verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. That same word blameless, which means beyond reproach. Not that there's sinless perfection, but that there's nothing going on in their life right now or recently that someone could look and say, hey, according to the word of God, you are to be blamed. You have a reproach in this area. It says before someone is a deacon, let them be proved. And then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Same as a pastor. It should take a certain amount of time to be proved. So a man should be proved for a certain amount of time before filling the office of a deacon. Verse 11. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. Same as a pastor. You want a good testimony within your own home. And it even mentions their wives and their wives being of good behavior in a way that it doesn't really with the pastor's wife. But obviously it all goes along the same thing that the the household has a good testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, for they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That word degree, I'm forgetting exactly, but I believe it's saying it it means a good report, a good achievement, a good award, a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So it says here that there's such a thing as the office of a deacon. It's not just someone who serves, but it's someone who has been ordained into that particular office. Um, when I preached on Mother's Day, I said I kind of slid around what I was going to do a Wednesday night Bible study about the women of the first century church. And one of the things that I said then was there's a woman, I believe in the book of Romans, where it uses the same type word that means servant, and it says receive her, for she has been a blessing and a comfort to many, many people, and that she conducts the business of God, so help her be a blessing to her. But here, the office of a deacon, that position that would be ordained within the church, is said to be a man, same as that of a pastor would be. The office of a deacon is that it would be a man who would be the husband of one wife. That means that you have to be a man. That's what one thing we can get out of that verse, certainly. So the, the question and point arises that some of you might have that at this point our church does not have deacons. I've been pastor here for about three months. I would like sometime in the future to have deacons. I'm not 100% convinced that every church has to have one because everybody works at different times in different ways. And in the book of Acts, they added them when the church was growing so much that there was a lot of needs for men to help serve the pastors, help serve the church. And I don't mean it as a denigrating thing to say, oh, it's waiting of a table. It's just the word, the the very definition of the word and the story in Acts chapter 6, it was not a board of people who ruled the church. It was not a board of people that decided how would the money be spent or would tell the pastor what he's allowed to preach on and what he's not. I believe the Bible teaches that office of elder, bishop, pastor is the one that oversees the church, that takes care of the house of God, that leads the sheep, and then the deacons come alongside to help serve, but that does not mean it's a 
a denigrating thing. It's J- Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. So when good men step up and look to help with the needs within the congregation, that's a wonderful thing. And that's what that verse said, that they basically they gain themselves a good reward of God. If you use the office well, they purchase to themselves a good degree. Um, so I'm not 100% convinced that every church has to have deacons all the time because a church can be so small that maybe there's not a need, maybe there's not someone who's qualified. Um, and a lot of churches end up operating in uh, Southern Baptist and others where there's sort of a deacon board that runs the church and the pastor just preaches on Sunday. So I don't believe that's really the way the Bible says that it operates. But with that being said, I would like to have deacons someday because there's two offices within the church, that of the pastor and that of the deacon. And the pastors lead and preach and the deacons help serve when there's a lot of tasks needing to be done within the congregation. Um, I think I've told this story before, but um, I was listening to uh, sports radio one day years ago on ESPN. Y'all pray for me, I'm not always very spiritual. But they were talking about mascots and college sports. And they said the Wake Forest mascot is called a demon deacon. And they said, why is it called a demon deacon? And they're like, I don't know. They said, well, go look it up. Maybe you'll find out what it means. And so this was like 40 minutes later, and it was the last five minutes of the show. And they said, I found out why it's called a demon deacon. And he says, the internet says that Wake Forest, which is a Baptist university, made their mascot the demon deacon because of the propensity and reputation of deacons to fight to the death for control of the church within Southern Baptist churches. And I went, my goodness, I've always heard those kinds of things, but they went and named their mascot off of it. Um, and so I've, I, you've heard me say all these things before, uh, but I'm not, when I bring up Southern Baptist churches, I'm not trying to trash them. There are a lot of them who are right in lockstep with the Bible and they participate in the convention. And other than that, they're pretty much independent Baptist churches, but some of them throughout time, but even now are going more liberal. And there's always sort of this pull back and forth of the conservative Southern Baptist and the liberal. But when I say Southern Baptist churches, don't think I'm trashing them because they preach the gospel. Most all of them that I've heard, many of them will do a lot more for God than I'll ever do. But I just thought that that story was so interesting. And that's what apparently tends to happen sometimes is you get a deacon board and then they want to control all the business of the church. I just personally believe that overseer, leader, preacher, spiritual shepherd is given to the office of the pastors and to assist with the serving of the congregation is the deacons. Okay, verse number 14. After summing up the qualifications of a pastor and of deacons, he says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. In the Old Testament, the church was called the house of God. I mean, the temple was called the house of God. Here in a New Testament context, in the pastoral epistles, Paul says, I'm instructing you in all these things that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of God. So this is a house of God. There were churches in the New Testament, about three or four of them, where it mentioned specifically they were meeting in a house. There were others who were meeting down by a river and in a public square and in synagogues when the Jews weren't using it. 
But there were examples of people going to a building like in Corinth and that was dedicated to the use of the Lord. And the church is made up of the people. But when we come together where the called out assembly comes to meet, that is the house of God. The church is called here the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar is not the source of truth itself. But a pillar simply holds up something, and the church is not the source of truth. The church helps hold up the truth. So we do not believe that there is a pope or leader in the church or pastor or anyone who just because he says it makes it the truth. The Bible is the truth, and the church is simply here to hold it up. Verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. One more verse here about deacons would be Philippians chapter 1. Jason, can you read verse 1 for us? Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Yes. Okay, so he's greeting the church and he says, Paul and Timothy, who are missionaries and pastors of their own, we say, he said, we greet the church with the pastors and the deacons. It says bishops, correct? The word bishop there is that word for overseer, referring to that office of the church. So there's two offices, that of the pastor and that of the deacon. Those would be the biblical offices. So I'm trying to decide how much further I want to go tonight. I have time, so let's go ahead and move on here. I'm going to get probably just in the middle of something and stop, but I don't think I'm ready to quit teaching just yet. So we'll move on now to the next part of this study where we're going to look at five questions. A lot of different people have questions about the word elder in the Bible, the word bishop, the word pastor, and what exactly do they mean? Do they refer to the same position or to a different one? And the last uh, blank there about deacons in your handout on the second page, it says deacons must have many of the same qualifications as the pastors. These are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 14, through 13. Thank you. So the questions we're going to look at are these. Are elders and pastors the same position? How old does an elder have to be? Does there have to be more than one? Can there be more than one? Do they all have to have an equal position of authority? So that's a lot to chew on. It's a lot to bite off. I think since I have 15 minutes, I'll go ahead and get about 10 minutes into this one section and probably just stop and pick it up there next week. And we'll do prayer requests and the offering here. So... What I have in your handout, the terms are used interchangeably. The terms are used interchangeably. And I think we can show that from three separate passages by looking at the Bible. I've been saying for a while, we'll study and look at it. I think I can show it. We'll go ahead and look at one of those passages here in just a moment. In the New Testament, the words used for the leader within the church who preaches, who oversees, who feeds, who takes care of the house of God, who is an overseer, the word elder is used 13 times. 
One time, the word presbytery is used. It says of Timothy, he received gifts of God by the laying on of hands of the presbytery. That word means multiple, means group of elders or multiple elders. So multiple pastors prayed for Timothy when he was ordained. That's in 1 Timothy 4.14. The word overseer is used six times. Um, let me see. I have that written down somewhere here. I think... The Greek word for overseer is used seven times, and six times it says bishop, and once it just says overseer. But that's the same meaning to that, both of those words that you see in the English. The word pastor is used one time. That word means to shepherd, as you would watch over the flock. I believe that was in Ephesians when it talks about some were given different gifts, and it says some pastors. The word pastor is used more often in the sense of a verb describing what the pastor does than it does that position, but once it does call the position pastor. We said that Baptists traditionally like the term pastor because it seems kind of a little bit more informal and away from the high church feel of saying bishop or saying elder, and it is a biblical term as well. Um... So before we launch into describing how do, do these things have to be, how can they be, I, I want to say right off the bat, I think the principle of biblical charity and of people following the Word of God to the best of their ability in their current context and situation while being loving and understanding and charitable to someone else who takes a little bit of a different interpretation or who in their context operate a little bit differently is very important. And that having charity and love towards one another and not thinking that just because somebody is different than me or has a different opinion than me on any of these topics, it means that I'm right and they're wrong. Inevitably, we will talk about what other churches do and what I've seen and what I've heard because it gives good illustrations but I think the majority of our time should be spent trying to figure out what does the Bible say, how should we follow it to the best of our ability, rather than looking at others who may do things slightly differently and spend a lot of time saying why they're wrong and saying why we have it right. I have a paper here that I have a few sections of commentary that I'm going to read from that I found the whole thing very interesting. I believe the uh, whole article was called The Problem of Eldership and its Wider Implications. And from what I can tell, it was written by someone who had a background in the Presbyterian type of church, but researched this extensively in the history of it and the debate they've had within their own denomination that I thought was very interesting and had a lot of very good biblical insights, in my opinion. So he says of this trying to figure out the exact role of elders and, and how many and are they different and are there some who have different functions, he says this, Let me suggest that a measure of uncertainty such as I have personally experienced, may not be altogether a bad thing. It is written of Dr. George Matherson, the last century Scottish preacher and hymn writer, that when he was young, he was confident that he could establish the intellectual coherence of religious and uh, biblical truth. But as time went on, he seemed to lose some of his confidence. The consequence, we trust, was that the author of A Love That Will Not Let Me Go, does anyone know that hymn? 
He wrote, the, Karen says she knows it. So it was the author of this hymn. Basically, it's saying when he was young, he felt extremely confident and dogmatic about all of these things. But as he got older, he started to have some things where he wasn't quite so sure on. And it says the result of this was that he became a humbler Christian. Similarly, some of us were once too ready to think that we could resolve all questions of church order and government. Uncertainty with humility of mind would be better for us to have than a wrong dogmatism. In other words, it would be willing to be humble and to say, I'm still kind of praying and seeking this out, and I think I know what it says, but I'm going to let God teach me. Then it would be to come to a conclusion too soon and be 100% correct that I'm right and everybody else is wrong and to get it wrong. For anyone to be hesitant when Scripture is definite is a sin. But we have also to recognize the danger that we may be definite when Scripture itself allows a greater latitude of opinion or practice than we are prepared to do. It could be said of the Pharisees they were stricter than God was because they said, no, don't get your animal out of the, you know, don't heal that person. And God said, if your animal fell into the ditch, you would go get them, but you're condemning me for healing someone on the Sabbath day. So I just thought that that was so good when he says, if we're hesitant when scripture is definite, it's a sin. But we also have to realize there's a danger of being definite when scripture itself perhaps allows for some leeway or gray area within certain areas. Then, of course, comes in, how do we interpret Scripture? And people will do double backflips to leave leeway, where the Bible is completely clear. But what we simply have to do is rightly divide the word of truth. And when the Bible teaches it, certainly we're going to stand up for it. And if the Bible leaves a little bit of wiggle room, let's do the best we can. And let's show grace to our brothers and sisters who see something in a little bit of a different way. And along the lines of the young hymn writer who it says he was so confident and arrogant, but later he got older and he became humble, Charles Spurgeon uh, lectures to my students. is a great book. Every once a week in his preacher's college, he just off the cuff kind of got up and gave them lectures and went back and forth. It wasn't his traditional pulpit ministry, but it's just fascinating to see how he trained them and to see apparently the issues of his day. A lot of them will end up being the same as issues of our day because they're always repeating themselves. There's always people drifting into liberalism. There's always people drifting into being a Pharisee. And he said, be careful. I wish I could quote it in the exact way he did because I just love the old English and how regal it sounds. But he, basically he was telling the young preachers, beware of walking around with your giant theological pistol hanging off your hip, your fingers itching to pull it out and shoot it at someone all the time. You're wrong. I'm right. Look at what this says. And likewise, he said, I, well, I once met a man who said, well, my creed changes every week. He said, that's someone who's being tossed back and forth in the wind to and fro. You need to figure out what you believe. There's some things you need to get nailed down. After you've been a Christian for a decade, you shouldn't be trying to figure out, is the Bible the word of God? And was Jesus sinless? You need to get some things nailed down. But he was saying, be careful, as I guess would be the habit of younger pastors or younger people in general, would be that a zealousness overtakes you and that that zeal can at times outpace your knowledge, and you're always ready to fight 
with somebody about something. The, there's a pastor in Arizona who got famous on YouTube and all the people in his church started leaving their states and moving to where he was because they said, well, no one else is really standing for the truth. And he was putting out YouTube videos about why Billy Graham is going to hell and why Charles Spurgeon is going to hell and why I'm praying for the president to die and go to hell. And all of these things that there was clearly some zeal of a heart who wanted to do something for God, but the zeal outpaced the knowledge and the hatred and the judgmentalness and the wanting to stand for truth all the time, so much to the place where you're basically nobody else is saved except for you. Nobody else is doing it the right way except for you. That becomes an incredible danger in and of itself. So with that being said, I think I'll stop because I'm not going to get very far if I start going. But the first question we'll look at is the question, are, past, are, are elders and pastors the same position? But remembering the principle before we really launch into that of charity and of realizing there may be different situations where people are doing the best they can and they don't quite agree with us, or maybe they do it different than us, but that's okay because God didn't say there's only one super specific way to do it. So with that being said, we'll go ahead and stop and move to take prayer request. And then Jason, if you'll help, we'll do the offering right here at the end of the service.